This week's episode of So Many Books, so, so Little Time has a small content note. As usual, we have themes of death and and rather nasty characters, but there's also a little bit heavy, heavier bullying going on, and it's a little nasty. So if anyone's ever, maybe that could be a bit difficult for some listeners to, to listen to. Hey folks, Dave here. Andrew. And welcome to So Many Books, So Little Time. Please join us as we continue Catch-22 by Joseph Heller with Chapter 20, Corporal Wickham. Just before we started recording, uh, Rue asked if we would be learning more about the chaplain, and I remarked that, oh, well, we don't actually know his name. But thinking back to last week, Colonel Cathcart was rather rude towards the chaplain when he remembered that he was only a captain. So yeah. I, don't, I don't think Corporal Whitcomb will be the chaplain, unless this is further ahead in the timeline. <laughs> yeah, we have no idea where the timeline is right now, so, oh, gosh. Uh, but it's um, it's a bit late in the week at the moment. I I know Ruse had quite the ordeal over the last seven days. I'm not feeling exactly the best. The, if you hear any weird background noise, the wind is going a mile a minute out there. Yeah. It's uh, quite remarkable. Yeah, I've got a severe wind warning notification today. I'm like, okay, okay, it's going to be one of those days where things are just flying around. Great, great. Yeah, like Please. I closed my window and it's still kind of like. Whoosh. Yeah, that's we have my a bit wind of, impression. We had a bit of rattling somewhere outside. One of the windows is just shaking a bit. So yeah, it's it's mm. it's a windy day. Uh, we're heading towards spring, slowly. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it's past the fifteenth of July. So sadly, winter is half over. Yeah, we're heading there. So I, I know you've been really busy lately, but have you mm. been reading anything? Honestly, I don't know. It, that sounds strange. I, I I can't like nothing's retaining right now because I've just been pushing through things. So if I sit down and I read a, a part of a novel, uh, like my ability to focus is a bit all over the place. Um, mm. So sometimes I can I can read it and I'm like I can't remember whether I read this series yet and I open it going oh yeah this is too familiar no and I, 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 so it's it's one of those uh, situations right now I'm that trying to think yeah so what I am doing is also I'm multi uh, I I just yeah too much information has has led to like because I'm between reading articles because of uni reading papers and and publications and being part of like a scientific discourse and then reading requirements in terms of paperwork and and other things and then when i want to read for pleasure i get sometimes i can and sometimes i can't and right now I, I'm, I'm in that phase where there's too much going in and i can't even switch off properly so it's not not i can't i can't get myself into that mindset I'm, I'm guessing then your your main uh, source of entertainment is probably having something easy on in, on the TV as you look yeah. through social media. 
Well, pr- yeah, procedural. So if for me to switch off, I'm using procedural and I'm, I'm scrolling through social media. And sometimes I can't even do that because it's just too much, too much uh, input and too much connecting the dots. And so I step away and I kind of, I'll have something thing run, running in the background and I, I try and do some work that I need to get done or I just switch off or I don't get much of it, much switching off. So it's just... Um, I might do paperwork that I need to get done or it's a bit much right now. There's, I I also, I'm enrolled in a prerequisite course for something I'm doing over the summer, which is, it's winter here. So prerequisite course now for the summer course at the end of the year. And I try to get everything in order. Luckily, it's not a course where it's like a, where they strictly grade you or anything like that. It's just literally write your reflections on this extract. How do you see this as being relevant and how would this apply? And there's no pressure. So there's no overthinking it. There's no heavy duty. You're not being asked to write an expository essay on blah, blah, blah. You're just kind of reflecting on certain questions and trying to see, okay, well, how does this this uh, relate? Uh, the course is about um, contributing towards, con- I think, contributing towards civilization building. I can't remember the exact name of the course, but it was just like, so it, it's, they're heavy concepts, but the way it's being done is so that anyone with any sort of background can participate. Mm. Um, this one's a postgraduate course. So it's a little bit more, it's a pr- preparation for a postgraduate course. So it's a little bit more um, intense and a little bit heavy, slightly heavier readings. But other than that, it's um, obviously everyone contributes to civilization building. So you're part of the civilization, so you can contribute to it. So it doesn't really uh, matter. I, I spent maybe six months to a year playing Civilization Five almost exclusively. <laughs> Yeah, see, everyone can do it. Uh, well, yeah, it, I think it was the idea of like, I, I haven't really had much of a chance to reflect it. So I've just started that this week and the first assignments to do on Monday and then in between cleaning a lab and organizing through 20 odd years worth of materials. That's been fun. We now have a freezer that I refer to and I will be getting a label printed out if I'm allowed uh, that I will be calling the mausoleum <laughs> because it just contains mouse um Mises? Yeah, parts of mice. There are mouse parts in that freezer. I It's not something I would ever deal with because I don't do mouse work, but in that lab, we have. Oh, just, what a tale to tell. You joke, and yet that's a big chunk of what's in that freezer. Tales. A whole, like bags and bags. Boxes. A, a library containing, of tales. <laughs> no, quite literally. They've got index numbers on them because you have to keep track of mm. what mouse and what the modifications are and what's going on. It's just, yes, a mausoleum. That's what's going on that <laughs> one. It's like, oh my gosh. Um, so many mice. So many bones. Because I am in a bone lab. So obviously, bones. So, so if you had flowers in that fridge, it would be a rhododendra? Yes. <laughs> I'd call it something nice and pretty, but we don't research flowers. We research bones. Uh, are there any flowers fields. that have, like, stalks that are like bones? Probably. Oh, yeah. Well, sort of. They, 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 they'd be st- they have their own stems and structures. Plant cells are a bit different. But, yeah. Fun times. Mm. Fun. Cleaning the lab because of reasons um oh anyway. it, it, it would be like you know 
people don't do this enough, at least in my experience, but you know that, yeah. that one time every five years when you really go at your pantry in your fridge and yep. you're like, I, how long have we had this? Yes. And then you, you do the, oh, but this is still good. It doesn't really go <laughs> off. And you put it back and then only to find it again 10 years later. Yeah, yeah. You're going, oh, God. But, yeah, it's been it's been a thing. There's emotional, physical, and uh, mental stress that comes with it. It's hmm. physically just exhausting. Yeah. Um, but at least most of the chemicals have been organized in a way that's safe. There is one bottle in particular that makes me a bit nervous that I need to find a better place for, but it's in a safe place right now, but I don't like it being where it is in the lab. And surprisingly, it's vitamin C, sort of. It's ascorbic acid, so yeah, it's vitamin C. Ascorbic acid in large enough amounts, much like, you know, the silos that we have that suddenly explode. Ah, Ascorbic acid has a similar thing when it comes in contact with air. There is a, there is a not, a not zero, so risk. So there is a chance of it spontaneously igniting. So you don't want to store that near flammables mm. or, or anything that could be toxic or explode. So you, you kind of keep that bottle a little further away from all the other chemicals. There, there are regulations for it, so it's okay. But also the amount that we have isn't that much, but it's enough that, you know, say that bottle fell down and smashed and fire, bad. Yeah. That, that would be bad next to, say, two liter bottle of alcohol that's sitting next to a gas line. That would be very bad. Um, so... <laughs> You have to be you have to be conscious of all these little factors, but that's why we have uh, safety regulations, and thankfully we do. I actually appreciate them. Some of it is a little bit strange, but it's okay. Like most of it makes sense. There's some of it where you're going if you're in a lab and you don't know not to drink things, <laughs> not to drink the saline solution that's sitting in a lab. You should not be in the lab. Yeah. So, there, but there are clauses for that. There's actual sections in the law that says what is considered reasonable knowledge or required knowledge in that area. So you, you label that within what is reasonable knowledge, which I think that's a little bit of less madness, <laughs> a little bit less madness. But it, it's it's hard to hard to ensure that we don't get into trouble for something that is that we are we're following the law and we're doing the right thing and we're also doing what's practical for our lab and safe. But because someone has interpreted it in the strictest way and is ignoring that part of the law. Mm. And you're going, no, that it doesn't make sense to put a, a label on that bottle. It's a it's a 15 mil tube. The writing on the tube will be so small that it's not going to do anything. So you just need to have a pictogram on it. As long as I know what's in the tube... I don't need the details of what to do in case of ingestion or what to do if I got it on my skin or what to do. It's like, don't handle the tube unless you are wearing gloves and you know exactly what's in it and what to do. Mm. Anyway, so there's, the, but that's covered in the law, but not always understood by the people who are, hi uh, who are hired to implement it within an institution sometimes. Mm. is how I'm going to very tactfully put it. Although we had an inspection and it actually was really helpful because we could just kind of go, but what about this? And it's like, well, look, no. So straight, straightforward. Do we need to label this this way? And like, nah, just put this on it. 
my area. Cool. So mm. sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's just a little. <laughs> so yes, we've described we've just we've described the process of going through all this stuff as an archaeological paleontological <laughs> expedition because of the bones and because of the chemicals and all the the mess, just so much stuff. So yeah, that's been my week and a bit. <laughs> And I'm very tired. I'm very tired. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing a bit more about the chaos that is also making no sense in Catch-22. By the way, we mentioned Catch-22 as a concept in the lab multiple times because we had a Catch-22 situation constantly arising. Uh. Like, so they want you to do this to, to, to get access to the lab, but you need to get access to the lab in order to do this. Mm. What? Now, do you do you think the term actually existed predominantly before the book, or did you think the book just popularized it in uh, culture? I don't know. I wonder. I, I would say it would have been popularized in culture after the book. That makes sense to me, because it wouldn't have been something that you knew outside of the military. Right. It might be a military term. Yeah, I think. Well, I'm assuming it's 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 an actual thing. I mean, at the beginning of the book. That's what um, was. It was described as the the clause that was required. That was why they edited letters that went out. That was described as the catch as catch twenty two as the actual rule. I think. Am oh I mistaken? my! My um, memory was the first time we heard about it was when Doctor Nika was telling Yasarian why he couldn't ground him. Yeah. The whole idea that you have to be insane to ground, but no one insane would actually come and say they're insane yeah or it was that which was which makes sense if that was the premise of the the, the whole foundation of the book being that particular catch-22 because yasarian shouldn't be there <sighs> mm. um many of them many the, of hun- them hungry be joe there. definitely should have gone home a long time ago i mean the colonel shouldn't colonel cathcart shouldn't be there yeah yeah, uh, we, we learned so much about him last chapter, more than I, I, almost any other character, really. Yeah. I actually wonder if that, like that's the, I don't know what the, like, we need to finish the book for me to really try and try and figure out what the purpose is as much as one purpose being uh, Joseph Heller probably processing what he went through Mm-mm. and trying to convey it in a way that others who've been through similar things can, can connect with mm. and process through. But also part of it feels like it's people are sent there and people who are in charge shouldn't be in charge. And people who are there, we need to treat them with humanity. We need to treat them with dignity. But the system that exists doesn't do that. Mm. It just uses people like like they're nothing. And I mean, Clevenger brought that up. Uh, Clevenger raised that, but you know... Yeah, okay, people die. Like, we, we know that. But it's not that they're, they're going outright out of their way to kill us. It's like going, well, yeah, they are. That, that's kind of the purpose of war. And then th- just that moment of, I can't process this. I can't handle this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, 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 uh, uh, he, he hid, hid himself. In a little bit. It was interesting. I actually wonder whether Clevenger's death timeline follows after that argument. Hmm. Well, well, it definitely couldn't be after his death. No. So, but the reason I was thinking is that because Clevenger is having that moment of, mm. of where he's realizing that even though he's trying to fit in and trying to do what he can do to survive, 
oh, it might accept his spirit. So he goes out on a mission and he doesn't have that uh, self-preservation or that the, the ability to make a quick decision that he might have when he really believed in his duty wholesale. Yeah, and where, or at least had convinced himself that he had to do that to, to survive. And then you've got um, Yasarian feeling upset about that, or upset. I just said a little upset. No, I think that would have possibly also contributed to Yasarian just becoming more and more, honestly, he's becoming more and more the deterioration into a state like what you would expect with Hungry Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he's definitely, and so much so that in the last chapter, the ch- that's why the chaplain went to see Colonel Cathcart. Although, I think he was also summoned because he wanted the colonel wanted to see if prayers before missions would help yeah, him yeah. out. I mean, the colonel called him in about prayer meetings so that he could get into a magazine and mm-hmm. the Saturday paper. Um, and uh, the chaplain said, "Oh well, well." And when when he basically phrased it and it made it, it, it ended up that no, it's not going to work out that way. It's actually a bad idea because you'll. All those prejudices you have in terms of enlisted men and all that other stuff, you're going to have to mm. think. And and in fact, if you leave them out, so he couldn't he couldn't do it in the way that that played to his and, and appeased his bigotry and and assumptions. Mm. And and then he's like, well, if there's nothing else, what? Are, like, well, actually, <laughs> Yasarian's not in a good way. And there's about this and there's that. And it's like, whatevs. The one thing that got me with almost the. Um the ludicrousness of his prejudices, which ironic because, you know, his prejudice is pretty ludicrous really when you get down to it, but that he wanted the prayers to be as secular as possible. He wanted to scrub, you know, like all, all uh, references to God and praise and the, the you know, all that, and death, all that out, out of them. Yeah. And yet the instant that um, the chaplain brought up that there are atheists <laughs> in the unit, Colonel Cathcart basically had a conniption yeah. Yeah, and you're going So what is it? And he's not religious either. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's the look. It's the, how he he wants to be perceived yeah, yeah. that's more important to him. I mean, we we had the whole all those contradictions at the beginning. Yeah. As well. Okay, well. Yeah. Chapter 20. Corporal Wickham. The late August morning sun was hot and steamy and there was no breeze on the balcony. The chaplain moved slowly. He was downcast and burdened with self-approach when he stepped without noise from the colonel's office on his rubber-soled and rubber-heeled brown shoes. He hated himself for what he construed to be his own cowardice. He had intended to take a much stronger stand with Colonel Cathcart on the matter of the sixty missions, to speak out with courage, logic and eloquence on a subject about which he had begun to feel very deeply. Instead, he had failed miserably, had choked up once again in the face of opposition from a stronger personality. It was a familiar ignominious experience, and his opinion of himself was low. He choked up even more a second later when he spied Colonel Corn's tubby monochrome figure trotting up the curved wide yellow stone staircase toward him in lackadaisical haste from the great dilapidated lobby below with its lofty walls of cracked dark marble and circular floor of cracked grimy tile. The chaplain was even more frightened of Colonel Corn than he was of Colonel Cathcart. The swarthy middle-aged lieutenant colonel with the rimless icy glasses and faceted bald dome-like pate 
that he was always touching sensitively with the tips of his splayed fingers, disliked the chaplain and was impolite to him frequently. He kept the chaplain in a constant state of terror with his cursed, derisive tongue and his knowing, cynical eyes that the chaplain was never brave enough to meet for more than an accidental second. Inevitably, the chaplain's attention, as he cowered meekly before him, focused on Colonel Corn's midriff, where the shirt tails, bunching up from inside his sagging belt and ballooning down over his waist, gave him an appearance of slovenly girth and made him seem inches shorter than his middle height. Colonel Corn was an untidy, disdainful man with an oily skin and deep heart lines running almost straight down from his nose between his crepuscular jowls and a square clefted chin. His face was dour, and he glanced at the chaplain without recognition as the two drew close on the staircase and prepared to pass. Hiya, father, he said tonelessly without looking at the chaplain. How's it going? Good morning, sir, the chaplain replied, discerning wisely that Colonel Corn expected nothing more in the way of a response. Colonel Corn was proceeding up the stairs without slackening his pace, and the chaplain resisted the temptation to remind him again that he was not a Catholic, but an Anabaptist, and that it was therefore neither necessary nor correct to address him as father. He was almost certain now that Colonel Corn remembered, and that calling him father with a look of such bland innocence was just another one of Colonel Corn's methods of taunting him because he was only an Anabaptist. Colonel Corn halted without warning when he was almost by and came whirling back down upon the chaplain with a glare of infuriated suspicion. The chaplain was petrified. What are you doing with that plum tomato, chaplain? Colonel Corn demanded roughly. The chaplain looked down his arm with surprise at the plum tomato Colonel Cathcart had invited him to take. I got it in Colonel Cathcart's office, sir, he managed to reply. Does the colonel know you took it? Yes, sir, he gave it to me. Oh, in that case, I guess it's okay. Colonel Corn said mollified. He smiled without warmth, jabbing the crumpled folds of his shirt back down inside his trousers with his thumbs. His eyes glinted keenly with a private and satisfying mischief. What did Colonel Cathcart want to see you about, father? he asked suddenly. The chaplain was tongue-tied with indecision for a moment. I don't think I ought, saying prayers to the editors of the Saturday Evening Post. The chaplain almost smiled. Yes, sir. Colonel Corn was enchanted with his own intuition. He laughed disparagingly. You know, I was afraid he'd begin thinking about something so ridiculous as soon as he saw this week's Saturday Evening Post. I hope you succeeded in showing him what an atrocious idea it is. He has decided against it, sir. That's good. I'm glad you convinced him that the editors of the Saturday Evening Post were not likely to run that same story twice just to give some publicity to some obscure colonel. How are things in the wilderness, father? Are you able to manage out there? Yes, sir. Everything is working out. That's good. I'm happy to hear that you have nothing to complain about. Let us know if you need anything to make you comfortable. We all want you to have a good time out there. Thank you, sir. I will. Noise of a growing stir rose from the lobby below. It was almost lunchtime, and the earliest arrivals were drifting into the headquarters mess halls, the enlisted men and officers separating into different dining halls on facing sides of the archaic rotunda. Colonel Corn stopped smiling. You had lunch with us here just a day or so ago, didn't you, father? He asked meaningfully. Yes, sir. The day before yesterday. That's what I thought, Colonel Corn said, and paused to let his point sink in. Well, take it easy, father. 
I'll see you around when it's time for you to eat here again. Thank what? you, sir. The chaplain okay. was... Do you hear the point he's making there? I'm thinking the chaplain's oblivious to it. Yeah, but no, he's like kind of going, don't stay. Mm. Like, don't stay for lunch. Which is not fair, because everyone's come in for lunch now. Yeah. That's rude. But obviously the idea that Colonel Cathcart and probably Colonel Corn will be taking him to lunch, and I don't think the chaplain wants to spend much time with either of them. No, well, there's that too. And and the feeling is mutual. Yeah. The chaplain was not certain at which of the five officers and five enlisted men's mess halls he was scheduled to have lunch that day. For the system of rotation worked out for him by Colonel Corn was complicated, and he had forgotten his records back in his tent. The chaplain was the only officer attached to group headquarters who did not reside in the moldering redstone group headquarters building itself or in any of the smaller satellite structures that rose about the grounds in disjuncted relationship. The chaplain lived in a clearing in the woods about four miles away between the officers' club and the first of the four squadron areas that stretched away from group headquarters in a distant line. The chaplain lived alone in a spacious square tent that was also his office. Sounds of revelry traveled to him at night from the officers' club and kept him awake often as he turned and tossed on his cot in passive, half-voluntary exile. He was not able to gauge the effect of the mild pills he took occasionally to help him sleep and felt guilty about it for days afterward. The only one who lived with the chaplain in his clearing in the woods was Corporal Wickham, his assistant, Corporal Wickham, an atheist, was a disgruntled subordinate who felt he could do the chaplain's job much better than the chaplain was doing it, and viewed himself, therefore, as an underprivileged victim of social inequity. He lived in a tent of his own as spacious and square as the chaplain's. He was openly rude and contemptuous to the chaplain once he discovered that the chaplain would let him get away with it. The borders of the two tents in the clearing stood no more than four or five feet apart. It was Colonel Corn who had mapped out this way of life for the chaplain. One good reason for making the chaplain live outside the group headquarters building was Colonel Corn's theory that dwelling in a tent, as most of his parishioners did, would bring him into closer communication with them. Another good reason was the fact that having the chaplain around headquarters all the time made the other officers uncomfortable. It was one thing to maintain liaison with the Lord, and they were all in favor of that. It was something else, though, to have him hanging around 24 hours a day. Mm. All in all, as Colonel Corn described it to Major Danby, the jittery and goggle-eyed group operations officer, the chaplain had it pretty soft. He had little more to do than listen to the troubles of others, bury the dead, visit the bedridden, and conduct religious services. And there were not so many dead for him to bury anymore. Colonel Korn pointed out, since opposition from German fighter planes had virtually ceased, and since close to 90% of what fatalities there still were, he estimated, perished behind the enemy lines or disappeared inside the clouds, where the chaplain had nothing to do with disposing of the remains, the religious services were certainly no great strain either, since they were conducted only once a week at the group headquarters building and were attended by very few of the men. Actually, the chaplain was learning to love it in his clearing in the woods. Both he and Corporal Wickham had been provided with every convenience so that neither might ever plead discomfort as a basis for seeking permission to return to the headquarters building. 
The chaplain rotated his breakfasts, lunches, and dinners in separate sets among the eight squadron mess halls and ate every fifth meal in the enlisted men's mess at group headquarters and every tenth meal at the officers' mess there. Back home in Wisconsin, the chaplain had been very fond of gardening, and his heart welled with a glorious impression of fertility and fruition each time he contemplated the low prickly boughs of the stunted trees and the waist-high weeds and thickets by which he was almost walled in. In the spring, he had longed to plant begonias and zinnias in a narrow bed around his tent, but had been deterred by his fear of Corporal Whitcomb's rancor. The chaplain relished the privacy and isolation of his verdant surroundings and the reverie and meditation that living there fostered. Fewer people came to him with their troubles than formerly, and he allowed himself a measure of gratitude for that, too. The chaplain did not mix freely and was not comfortable in conversation. He missed his wife and his three small children, and she missed him. What displeased Corporal Wickham most about the chaplain apart from the fact that the chaplain believed in God, was his lack of initiative and aggressiveness. Corporal Wickham regarded the low attendance at religious services as a sad reflection of his own status. His mind germinated feverishly with challenging new ideas for sparking the great spiritual revival of which he dreamed himself the architect. Box lunches, church socials, form letters to the families of men killed and injured in combat, censorship, Bingo. But the chaplain blocked him. Corporal Wickham bridled with vexation beneath the chaplain's restraint, for he spied room for improvement everywhere. It was people like the chaplain, he concluded, who were responsible for giving religion such a bad name and making pariahs out of them both. Mm. Isn't he an atheist? Yep. Mm -hmm. Unlike the chaplain, Corporal Wickham detested the seclusion of the clearing in the woods. One of the first things he intended to do after he deposed the chaplain was move back into the group headquarters building where he could be right in the thick of things. When the chaplain drove back into the clearing after leaving Colonel Corn, Corporal Wickham was outside in the muggy haze talking in conspiratorial tones to a strange chubby man in a maroon corduroy bathrobe and gray flannel pajamas. The chaplain recognized the bathrobe and pajamas as official hospital attire. Neither of the two men gave him any sign of recognition. The stranger's gums had been painted purple. His corduroy bathrobe was decorated in back with a picture of a B-25 nosing through orange bursts of flak, and in front was six neat rows of tiny bombs signifying 60 combat missions flown. The chaplain was so struck by the sight that he stopped to stare. Both men broke off their conversation and waited in stony silence for him to go. The chaplain hurried inside his tent. He heard, or imagined he heard, them tittering. Corporal Wickham walked in a minute later and demanded, What's doing? There isn't anything new, the chaplain replied with averted eyes. Was anyone here to see me? Just that crackpot Yesarian again. He's a real troublemaker, isn't he? I'm not so sure he's a crackpot, the chaplain observed. That's right, take his part, said Corporal Wickham in an injured tone and stamped out. The <laughs> he's annoying. The Sorry, I just noticed you rolling your eyes there. Yeah. <laughs> the chaplain could not believe that Corporal Wickham was offended again and had really walked out. As soon as he did realize it, Corporal Wickham walked back in. You always side with other people, Corporal Wickham accused. You don't back up your men. That's one of the things that's wrong with you. I didn't intend to side with him, the chaplain apologized. I was just making a statement. What did Colonel Cathcart want? 
It wasn't anything important. He just wanted to discuss the possibility of saying prayers in the briefing room before each mission. All right, don't tell me, Corporal Whitcomb snapped and walked out again. The chaplain felt terrible. No matter how considerate he tried to be, it seemed he always managed to hurt Corporal Whitcomb's feelings. He gazed down remorsefully and saw that the orderly forced upon him by Colonel Corn to keep his tent clean and attend to his belongings had neglected to shine his shoes again. Corporal Whitcomb came back in. You never trust me with information, he whined truculently. You don't have confidence in your men. That's another one of the things that's wrong with you. Yes, I do, the chaplain assured him guiltily. I have lots of confidence in you. Then how about those letters? No, not now, the chaplain pleaded, cringing. Not the letters. Please don't bring that up again. I'll let you know if I have a change of mind. Corporal Wickham looked furious. Is that so? Well, it's all right for you to just sit there and shake your head while I do all the work. Didn't you see the guy outside with all those pictures painted on his bathrobe? Is he here to see me? No, Corporal Wickham said and walked out. It was hot and humid inside the tent, and the chaplain felt himself turning damp. He listened like an unwilling eavesdropper to the muffled, indistinguishable drone of the lowered voices outside. As he sat inertly at the rickety bridge table that served as a desk, his lips were closed, his eyes were blank, and his face, with its pale ochre hue and ancient confined clusters of minute acne pits, had the color and texture of an uncracked almond shell. He racked his memory for some clue to the origin of Corporal Wickham's bitterness toward him. In some way, he was unable to fathom. He was convinced he had done him some unforgivable wrong. It seemed incredible that such a lasting ire as Corporal Wickham's could have stemmed from his rejection of Bingo or the form letters home to the families of the men killed in combat. The chaplain was despondent with an acceptance of his own ineptitude. He had intended for some weeks to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with Corporal Wickham in order to find out what was bothering him, but was already ashamed of what he might find out. Outside the tent, Corporal Wickham snickered. The other man chuckled. For a few precarious seconds, the chaplain tingled with a weird occult sensation of having experienced the identical situation before in some prior time or existence. He endeavored to trap and nourish the impression in order to predict, and perhaps even control, what incident would occur next. But the afflatus melted away unproductively, as he had known beforehand it would. Deja vu. The subtle recurring confusion between illusion and reality that was characteristic of paramnesia fascinated the chaplain, and he knew a number of things about it. He knew, for example, that it was called paramnesia and he was interested as well in such corollary optical phenomenon as jamevu, never seen, and prescuvu, almost seen. There were terrifying sudden moments when objects, concepts, and even people that the chaplain had lived with almost all his life inexplicably took on an unfamiliar and irregular aspect that he had never seen before, and which made them totally strange, jamevu and there were other moments when he almost saw absolute truth in brilliant flashes of clarity that almost came to him. Prescuvu. The episode of the naked man in the tree at Snowden's funeral mystified him thoroughly. It was not déjà vu, for at the time he had experienced no sensation of ever having seen a naked man in a tree at Snowden's funeral before. It was not Jamevu, since the apparition was not of someone or something familiar appearing to him in an unfamiliar guise. And it was certainly not Prescivu, for the chaplain did see him. 
Have you ever heard of these um, other two before? I mean, deja vu's kind of, no. I feel like it's a very common. Um, no, I've never heard the other ones before. Mm. A jeep started up with a backfire directly outside and roared away. Had the naked man in the tree at Snowden's funeral been merely a hallucination, or had it been a true revelation? The chaplain trembled at the mere idea. He wanted desperately to confide in Yesarian, but each time he thought about the occurrence, he decided not to think about it any further. Although, now that he did think about it, he could not be sure that he ever really had thought about it. Corporal Whitcomb sauntered back in, wearing a shiny new smirk, and leaned his elbow impertinently against the center pole of the chaplain's tent. Do you know who the guy in the red bathrobe was? he asked boastfully. That was a CID man with a fractured nose. He came down here from the hospital on official business. He's conducting an investigation. The chaplain raised his eyes quickly in obsequious commiseration. I hope you're not in any trouble. Is there anything I can do? No, I'm not in any trouble, Corporal Wickham replied with a grin. You are. They're going to crack down on you for signing Washington Irving's name to all those letters you've been signing Washington Irving's name to. How do you like that? I haven't been signing Washington Irving's name to any letters, said the chaplain. You don't have to lie to me, Corporal Wickham answered. I'm not the one you have to convince. But I'm not lying. I don't care whether you're lying or not. They're going to get you for intercepting Major Major's correspondence, too. A lot of that stuff is classified information. What correspondence? asked the chaplain plaintively and rising his aspiration. I've never even seen any of Major Major's correspondence. You don't have to lie to me, Corporal Wickham replied. I'm not the one you have to convince. But I'm not lying, protested the chaplain. I don't see why you have to shout at me, Corporal Wickham retorted with an injured look. He came away from the center pole and shook his finger at the chaplain for emphasis. I just did you the biggest favor anybody ever did you in your whole life, and you don't even realize it. Every time he tries to report you to his superiors, somebody up at the hospital censors out the details. He's been going batty for weeks trying to turn you in. I just put a censor's okay on his letter without even reading it. That will make a very good impression for you up at CID headquarters. It will let them know that we're not the least bit afraid to have the whole truth about you come out. The chaplain was reeling with confusion. But you aren't authorized to censor letters, are you? Of course not, Corporal Wickham answered. Only officers are ever authorized to do that. I censored it in your name. But I'm not authorized to censor letters either, am I? I took care of that for you too, Corporal Wickham assured him. I signed someone else's name for you. Isn't that forgery? Oh, don't worry about that either. The only one who might complain in a case of forgery is the person whose name you forged, and I looked out for your interests by picking a dead man. I used Washington Irving's name. Corporal Whitcomb scrutinized the chaplain's face closely for some sign of rebellion, and then breezed ahead confidently with concealed irony. That was pretty quick thinking on my part, wasn't it? I don't know, the chaplain wailed softly in a quavering voice, squinting with grotesque contortions of anguish and incomprehension. I don't think I understand all you've been telling me. How will it make a good impression for me if you signed Washington Irving's name instead of my own? Because they're convinced that you are Washington Irving. Don't you see? They'll know it was you. But isn't that the very belief we want to dispel? Won't this help them prove it? If I thought you were going to be so stuffy about it, I wouldn't even have tried to help, Corporal Wickham declared indignantly and walked out. A second later, he walked back in. I just did you the biggest favor anybody ever did you in your whole life and you don't even know it. You don't know how to show your appreciation. That's another one of the things that's wrong with you. I'm sorry, the chaplain apologized contritely. I really am sorry. It's just that I'm so completely stunned by all you're telling me that I don't even realize what I'm saying. I'm really grateful. 
I'm really very grateful to you. Then how about letting me send out these form letters? Corporal Wickham demanded immediately. Can I begin working on the first drafts? The chaplain's jaw dropped in astonishment. No, no, he groaned. Not now. Corporal Wickham was incensed. I'm the best friend you've got, and you don't even know it, he asserted belligerently, and walked out of the chaplain's tent. He walked back in. I'm on your side, and you don't even realize it. Don't you know what serious trouble you're in? That CID man has been rushing back to the hospital to write a brand new report on you about the tomato. What tomato? The chaplain asked, blinking. The plum tomato you were hiding in your hand when you first showed up here. There it is. The tomato you're still holding in your hand right this very minute. The captain unclenched his fingers with surprise and saw that he was still holding the plum tomato he had obtained in Colonel Cathcart's office. He set it down quickly on the bridge table. I got this tomato from Colonel Cathcart, he said, and was struck by how ludicrous his explanation sounded. He insisted I take it. You don't have to lie to me, Corporal Wickham answered. I don't care whether you stole it from him or not. Stole it, the chaplain exclaimed with amazement. Why should I want to steal a plum tomato? That's exactly what had us both stumped, said Corporal Wickham. And then the CID man figured out you might have some important secret papers hidden away inside it. The chaplain sagged limply beneath the mountainous weight of his despair. I don't have any important secret papers hidden away inside it, he stated simply. I didn't even want it to begin with. Here, you can have it and see for yourself. I don't want it. Please take it away, the chaplain pleaded in a voice that was barely audible. I want to be rid of it. I don't want it, Corporal Wickham snapped again and stalked out with an angry face, suppressing a smile of great jubilation at having forged a powerful new alliance with the CID man and at having succeeded again in convincing the chaplain that he was really displeased. Poor Wickham, sighed the chaplain, and blamed himself for his assistant's malaise. He sat mutely in a ponderous, stultifying melancholy, waiting expectantly for Corporal Wickham to walk back in. He was disappointed as he heard the preemptory crunch of Corporal Wickham's footsteps recede into silence. There was nothing he wanted to do next. He decided to pass up lunch for a Milky Way and a Baby Ruth from his footlocker and a few swallows of lukewarm water from his canteen. He felt himself surrounded by dense, overwhelming fogs of possibilities in which he could perceive no glimmer of light. He dreaded what Colonel Cathcart would think when the news that he was suspected of being Washington Irving was brought to him then fell to fretting over what Colonel Cathcart was already thinking about him for even having broached the subject of sixty missions. There was so much unhappiness in the world, he reflected, bowing his head dismally beneath the tragic thought, and there was nothing he could do about anybody's, least of all his own. Wow. That was a depressing chapter. Confusing and depressing. Oh, I, I'm sorry I ever found out who Corporal Wickham is. Yep. It's so confusing. So he's suppressing, he's convincing the chaplain that he's displeased, and then the chaplain blames himself. And it seems it's all part of, I guess, Wickham's master plan to take over as chaplain, even though he's an atheist. And he's not qualified. He's a corporal. He's not a chaplain. He's not a captain. He's also not allowed to... It, it, he, so he forged... And, and, like, the thing that struck me as well, just how ludicrous this whole thing, that CID man, perhaps you remember him from the hospital in uh, Major Major. There were two CID men that kept kind of working at odds because yeah, and they uh, Major Major thinking... started signing Washington Irving's name, but also Yusarian was doing that in the hospital. 
Yeah, well, Yossarian, I think, started it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of become a thing now between all of them. And sometimes it's Irving Washington and sometimes it's mm-hmm. just, what a mess. And then, then the real stupidity for me was I was helping you out to, and now this could be malice on what comes part oh, of me, which is plain a fool, but he's like, to, to help you out, I forged it in your name, but I can't forge it. You know, I can't sign off on this. You know, don't worry. I forged Washington Irving's name. Yeah. Far out. It's 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 a mess. Uh, so yeah, Colonel Whitcomb is a bit of a dick. Um, <laughs> yeah, not um, Colonel Corporal. Sorry, I've I've um, come across people like that in my life because I don't like confrontation, and I I tend to like to sometimes just you know go with the flow. And I've worked alongside people that when when they see that someone's not going to push back at them, they they get a complex about them. Yeah, well, that was the thing. Like he was saying, like he had his ideas, which are bingo, and having letters that are preformed, written to like the deceased, right? The families yeah, to the, the families deceased. of the deceased. So templates, basically. He's saying let's write templates. Hmm. And he's like, whereas um, the chaplain said no, for what many reasons, I am sure. The one of which would be it's disgusting and. And also there's a system. There is already an existing system for when someone has, has died. They, they usually send a messenger. It's not mm. like you get a letter. And um, I guess the problem on the chaplain's part is it sounded like he never really said no. He said, let me think about it. But Whitcomb No, I think he's, keeps... he's, I think he's probably said no. I think he said no to all of these, but because of the way Whitcomb interacts with him, mm. Whitcomb goes basically in a huff and I'm offended. And then he's like, look, I'm sorry, you're offended. Uh, like, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend. I do appreciate your idea. And it's like, oh, okay. So let's do the things like, no, no, it's a bad idea. We're not going to do it, but I appreciate that you gave the idea. Like, so, so whatever the chaplain would have said, it would have been right. God, Wickham's so petulant. God, he's such a pain. Um, and the whole tomato thing with, uh, <laughs> with Colonel Corn and, uh, and then, and then the talk about uh, how the like headquarters, how everyone perceives the chaplain's role. Yeah, and I think that they're all they're all really like, oh, it's cruisy. It's not like like this. Like they have to deal with the death and mm. the pain. You guys don't care about people dying. They yeah. have to. Like he <sighs> seems to actually, uh, maybe aside from Dunbar, he seems to be the only person who cares about Yasarian. And something happened also like this is okay. So one thing that came up as a thing, someone dead, someone dead, dead. Snowden's funeral. Snowden's funeral. Naked man in tree. <laughs> ten out of ten chance that that's Usarian. Yes, because there was that period, and I think it was linked to Snowden where Usarian started being naked all the time. Yes. So Snowden dead. Usarian got them to pin a medal on him whilst he was naked. Which is a thing. Wasn't Snowden that was mentioned was also, in passing? That was mentioned in passing. Snowden was the one who told Yasserian in confidence that everything's out to get you, right? Right Whilst before he, he died, was dying. Yes, he he said that everything is out to get you. Like, let me tell you a secret. Everyone is trying to kill you, kind of thing. Mm. And I mean, if you think about it, you've got people like Whitcomb. You've got people like black you've got people like cathcart 
Cathcart, you've got people like everyone is, it's uh, even Dreadle, all of them. It's all about their ambitions. It's all about the Shyskov, all of them. It's all about what they get out of it. No mm. one is actually there for, uh, I mean, you've got, I call him the pirate dude, <laughs> the coverly, thank you. Uh, <laughs> pirate dude, because he ends up with a patch. Mm. It's a weird thing. So he, uh, Major de Coverly and Major Major, who kind of went like, I think Major Major came because he knew it had to be done because it was the thing you had to do. Mm. You couldn't stay, like, you had to go. And he had also pressure uh, a bit, like social guilt and pressure. I don't think any, it's it's actually very, um, I could see how people, who have the the have had combat experiences and would would a probably relate to this because it's showing them all these different motivations for why people are there and how they treat others and how they are treated but so far i mean i don't know have we seen anyone who is there because they feel it's the right thing to do well there was um that kid from iowa no, eyes in Idaho. His, flies in his eyes Appleby? No, Appleby. Yeah, it might have been Appleby because Ar- yeah. Arfie's the other one. Arfie's, but, uh, yeah, Apple, yeah no. Appleby was the, the kid who's there because, you know, of Uncle Sam and Mom's apple pie. And I mean, I mean, it's propaganda, but he's he's thinking he's fighting for America, doing the right thing. Yeah, but none of them are there for the purpose of what these people is going, what these people are going through is unjust. We need to, you know? Hmm. I think Isarian might actually have been the person who who went. He tried. He was hoping to avoid combat because he doesn't want to die, obviously. But also, he. I think he he he's trying to survive hmm. and try and what he still I think values life. That's the thing that's bugging me. I think a lot of the the characters here don't value life. Hmm. They don't value the need to be alive. They don't value, well, the need to be alive, survival. They don't value survival. They don't value the effects they have on other people. The fact, you know, that whole thing with uh, Luciana where she goes, well, yeah, I lost my whole village because it got bombed. And she's like, oh, Germans, like, no, Americans. And there was that moment. There was a moment where he, you could, I think it affected him. Mm. And then, then he's like, no, I can't. Like, no, I'm not going to do this. And like, oh, no, I actually was in love with her properly. Like, whatever it was. So there's an emotional thing. He's he's conscious of the fact that they are bombing people. Hmm. He co- is conscious of the fact that people are being evicted. And that, whereas people like Havemeyer and whatever, just like, they, they, they're conscious, but they, they have a joy in it. Yeah. They like the fact that they're hurting people and killing people. I'm not saying Yusarian's a good character. I'm not saying he's a good person. I'm saying that he's, he actually, I think, on some level cared about his fellow human beings. Mm. Well, on some uh, level, but then not super care, care, but like there was Mm. something where he was crying because of the whole being a dead kid, though he wasn't dying. But then by the end of it, he like he was crying as though he was dying in the hospital. Ah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he bought into the the, uh, the fantasy he was there. Yeah, so he's, I mean, he's not, he's not, he's not a person that, there, there's some, he still feels. I think that's the difference. Like, there's feeling there. 
whereas a lot of them are like it's 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 disjointed it's disconnected there's trauma there's all sorts of stuff going on well maybe he had feeling but it seems that over time that's been worn away yeah i think I, there's, I also there's a don't, lot of trauma i also don't know uh his reasons for enlisting we might have had that a small amount of that well he i think he was there was pressure like he had like it was the only option really without we didn't get all the details. We just had a little glimpse of the, the timing of their enlistment was because they thought that he thought that he could avoid the combat. Mm. And he chose to fly because he didn't want to be in infantry. Now, um, one thing I did want to bring up was uh, last chapter and actually uh, a bit of the book so far, when taking as a duo, uh, Colonel Korn seems like the, the, um, the calm... Uh, just counterbalance to Colonel Cathcart. Yet from the chaplain's point of view, when we actually get some descriptions about Colonel Korn, at the start of this chapter, it paints him in a very different light. Well, no, because Colonel Korn comes across as this, but for him, he's entertained. He's amused. It's all about entertainment and amusement. Even with the interaction with him, Cathcart and Usarian, the way he was talking is like going, well, We've got to do the thing that makes us look good. And he's he's almost entertained by the incompetence that is Cathcart. Right. And he's using Cathcart's incompetence to make him look better as well. Right, because he, he did talk about, oh, he, he pretty much nailed the reason the chaplain was there almost immediately. Oh, it's because of the Saturday Evening Post. Yeah. Wasn't it? He's entertained. And, and didn't we have a whole thing where Colonel Korn is actually... So Cathcart works for one of the the um, is working to to suck up to one of the generals, and Corn is kind of the counterbalance. He's for the other generals person. So there's there was I don't the recall that uh, there was a political thing as well where you have the two different generals that are in constant competition with each other. So there's Dreidel and what was the Peckham. other one? Peckham, yeah. And then one is Peckham's man, and one is Dreidel uh, is Dreidel's man, and everyone. You know what it is? All of these guys, who the further you go up the, the food chain, they're all there for themselves. Yeah. They're all in it for themselves. They manipulate and and just treat the men as cannon fodder. The fact that they're saying there's not many deaths left because they just have to deal with dying people. Much like, well, you're making them fight 60 missions, so the odds of them dying goes up, but there's not going to be anyone left. There's no relief. Remember, Cathcart won't get the people to, over from, I think, yeah. Africa to relieve. And and there's also that idea where, you know, as officers, they don't have to see the horrors of war. Uh, no. Yet Cathcart, as an officer, has such a disdain for the enlisted men, the one that the people who actually have to go and do the fighting. Yeah, here's a question, actually. I, I wonder, because so end of last chapter, we had the discussion from, so the chaplain goes, hey, they're asking for more relief. They need the 60 missions is an issue. We need to stop. And we not in so many words. It's like 60 mm-hmm. missions is too much. We need relief. We need to get the people to relieve the men. The men are at the end of their tether. Mm. Particularly Yossarian is, I'm, I'm worried. Um, so all these things. And, and the responses were basically no, no, no. And then I realized, remember, what makes them look bad is if they're saying we can get this done with these people, and if they if people die, okay, people die as long as you don't go and 
try again twice. You know, don't go back again and try、mm. and bomb the same time. You know, that kind of thing. But so there's a bit of that, and then there's the、um, the going and、uh, what was the thing that was happening? I was thinking the th- my thought that I had was, what about the fact that they、um, Oh, it makes them look bad if they got the people to relieve them because it shows that they couldn't get things done with the men that they had. That's one reasoning I can see that both Colonel Corn and Cathcart would be st- saying or standing for, which is why you can't—they're not getting the relief and and burning through their people. And then the other thing would be, if more people come, that means more people that could potentially die because they're green. Because they're green. Well, they're green, but also it, they're running out of people. So when when Colonel Corns like, well, they're not dying as much, there's not as many deaths. That's because you're running out of people to die. If you get new people there, that means a whole batch of fresh people that can die. So the number of men that have died under their command will go up, and that will make them look bad as well. It means that they will also be.、Uh, it doesn't make them look good in terms of promotions as well.、Hmm. So that's it. It's it's all about how they look and how they what they get out of it. Colonel Corn supposedly has not kind of moved through the ranks as fast as、uh, Colonel Cathcart, but that's because he's also entertained. He's amused. He's he seems、up. to have found his niche and has settled there. Yeah, he's like, I'm good where I am. I have I'm good. Yeah, it's rough. So yes, yes. Ah well,、uh, speaking of the general. Sorry, Next、friend. chapter is General Dreidel. Yes, and it's quite Dreidel's funny because it reminds me of a po- it's a Pokemon name. Dreidel. Dreidel's a Pokemon. Is that one of those bug Pokemon? I think so. I think it's a Pokemon. I swear it's a Pokemon. I'm going to find out. Oh, unless I call them. Yeah, yeah. Speaking <laughs> of finding things out,、uh, last、yeah. last episode I talked about the first、uh, story with a plot twist. And good old Wikipedia, I looked up,、uh, helped me out. So、hmm. uh, it turns out that the first kind of mystery with a plot twist at the end is recorded in the、uh, Arabian Nights, the Thousand and One Tales. Of course, it was. <laughs> <laughs> naturally, and, and naturally, I think it's called the Three Apples. Three apples. Yes, it was the Three Apples by someone. I I can never remember names. But、right、but、now. the idea that the, the person who's responsible at the end of the story is a shock, I'm like oh, it's really this. Damn. I was trying to look up the three apples author, and I typed in Dreidel Pokemon again. So no, it isn't a Dreidel Pokemon. Sorry, it's a it's a it's a um, it's the Weedle. The Weedle, yeah. The Weedle, and I know there's another Pokemon that starts with a D, and it confuses me. Like a Dweezel、so、or merged- something. Yeah, I I I, I merged.、Uh, Dwe- Dweezil's the name of Frank Zappa's son. Yes, and and Weezer is the name of a band that plays songs. That we <laughs> <laughs> also yeah, so she did words. Really great、uh, SNL sketch from a couple of years ago,、yeah. where Matt Damon and Leslie Jones as Weezer fans get into a huge dinner argument over when Weezer stopped being good. Oh wow! This, it, all these things. It, it's amazing. Now I'm going to find out the name of the author of the Three Apples in case someone wanted to read that story. Three Apples author or Thor. Well, I mean, most、author. most of those、uh, Arabian Nights stories are kind of uncredited, aren't they? Sort of.、Um, so, Hikayat as Sabia al 
Muk I can't say it. Muktula Muktula is the tale of the murdered woman or the three apples. It's told by Sherazade. It's a one second level story. To this because of the you were describing this in previous um podcasts where there's layers and layers of stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that, that that's one of the more amusing things about uh Arabian Nights is yeah, the 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 main rapper of Arabian Nights, which is the the young lady telling the king story after story to keep her sister alive, but as she's telling stories, the people in the stories tell stories to people, and then the people in those stories tell stories to people, and sometimes they can go down into this you know Russian nesting doll like five levels deep, and then it slowly comes back out, but then like it'll come out into story three and the characters in story three will go well that's a great story but have you heard this one and then they'll go deeper <laughs> and then it'll come back and uh. it, it goes it, it's it's they are this probably also the original uh meta um <laughs> experience mm. before the internet well, because yeah um, at the end of because some of these stories can also be epics like there was one that was you know many different generations of like these kings and warriors and the story went on for a long time, and when it was finished, they went back to the person telling it, and then it, uh, it dawned on me, oh, that's right. This was a story someone else was telling. <laughs> so amazing. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of them, and, and, and there's also some interesting, um, uh, what's it called? This, yeah, it's the, it's a plot. Apparently, it's a, it's actually the first time that plot device that was, was used, that was, well, in writing. Hmm. And, um, and I imagine, like like a lot of our oldest stories, most of the Arabian Night stories were orally told for generations before, that, yeah. before they were written down. Yeah, the, the Thousand and One Nights, like the, there's so many, yeah, there's some great stories, mm. like, older stories that, that finally got documented that it's... Um, I'm, about, I'm about halfway through the translation of the full thing. I, I took a break a few months ago to read a lot of other more contemporary things, but... Uh, one of these days, I'll get back to it. So I think that will do it for this week. I hope you all enjoyed yourselves. The music at the top of the podcast was Soap Runs by Rupert Gregson-Williams and Harry Gregson-Williams. It's from the 2019 adaptation of Catch-22. The music at the end of the podcast is, as always, I'm the Slime by Frank Zappa. You can find me over on Twitter at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. And you can find me at Rue McMoo, R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O -O -O, on Twitter, or you can find our podcast at S-M-B-S-L-T podcast. Uh, that's on Twitter. It's on Facebook. And if you add at gmail.com, that's our email address. We are happy to hear from you. Any insights, any suggestions regarding stories, preferably don't offer us any products. We're not really interested in engaging in any product purchases or costs we don't have that kind of capital so i.e we we have no capital yeah i.e no <laughs> we, we are not offered uh, we are not interested in your extremely special offer we appreciate that you have a business to run and you have ideas and skills that's great but we cannot pay you other than exposure and that's not really fair to you either mm. But yes, so if you have any ideas for books or stories or really interesting insights regarding language or words that we might have even struggled about, let's 
or words we might have struggled with. See, look at that. I struggled. Uh, that, that you might go, oh, actually, this is where that word comes from. And this is what it means. We're happy to have that dialogue. It's great. It's interesting. Uh, to us. How dare you? I read every new word perfectly the first time every time. <laughs> that was sarcasm. Sarcasm. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, we hope you're enjoying yourself. We hope you're staying safe. We hope you're enjoying your reading. And we will see you next time. Yes. Yeah.